Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syndicate to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for these words, for your word uh, through Paul. Um, by your spirit, open these words up to us. Open our hearts to you to work and to dwell. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So today's passage is one of those, uh, one of those favorite catchphrase passages, right? And we've been working through this letter all summer, and we've identified the master story in Philippians 2, the master story of Jesus. And that's typically when you're reading the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the, the good thing is to, to always have uh, a focus, and normally the focus is, before the focus is how this speaks to me or what I'm supposed to do, the focus is Jesus and how this makes God known in Christ. And so we have uh, this passage today that has two of my favorite uh, little snippets in Paul's arsenal, ones that might be familiar with you guys. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring all your requests to God in prayer and petition and give thanks. Then the God of peace that exceeds all understanding, the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful and be beautiful, inspiring words that have meant a lot to me in these last like couple of decades that I've been following Christ. That this promise that if I'm anxious, God will show up and I, I bring these anxieties to him. Uh, I was thinking especially uh, with a storm, I'm from Florida and I, uh, my most visceral experience with, with the storm and with anxiety related to a storm wasn't actually in Florida. It was a few years back in Virginia Beach when I was stranded in the middle of a storm. And, and I was thinking about um, the, the impulse, the re reflex there um, for me came in talking to God 
as if God, as if Jesus was in my passenger seat through some of the songs that we were supposed to sing the next day in worship. <laughs> songs about how firm a foundation <laughs> and seeing us through trials and through the, the deep waters <laughs> and through anxiety and through fear and, and, and communing with God in the middle of that. I love this passage because of the call to prayer, which I so often forget. Uh, my, my first impulse is normally to ask a friend, but it's not to ask God or to, to beseech God. Or the recognition that the answers from these prayers that I'm praying are going to elicit something maybe infinitely different or better than I have the capacity to plan for myself, right? That God is, exceeds all of my understanding and will guard my heart and mind in Christ. That's risky stuff to pray for something and the answer you might get might not be what you're actually asking for. I love the, the other passage in this that says, from now on, brothers and sisters, if anything's excellent, admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. If it's true, holy, just, pure, lovely, praiseworthy, practice these things. I love that. That's like the Christian standard for what to take in. Where to spend my time, where to spend my money, where to spend my attention, how to grow in virtue in Christ-likeness. Focus on these things. This is the syllabus and the rubric, right? All of this is true, but I think there's more. <laughs> I think Paul simply wasn't the type of writer to just put together a collection of favorite verses, like pithy sayings that are really important for us. Like Philippians isn't Proverbs. Like that's not how it's, it's written. This is a letter to real people experiencing real things. So there's got to be something behind them. There's got to be a context to cause Paul to write these things. There's got to be something more tying these thoughts together. And, and I was, uh, that, that's the question I've been dwelling with all week looking at this passage is, why is he saying these things? And why are these two verses like crunched next to each other? They, they seem, they don't, they don't exactly make perfect sense. Well, there is a reason uh, that this was written. There's a context. There was actually an incident. We don't know a whole lot about it. But there was some sort of disagreement that Paul is moderating from afar. It's a disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche, and we get these names, and that reminds us again that this is a letter. This is a correspondence. Man, if, if you were those two women and your name was in this letter that was going to be read aloud in front of everyone, oof, <laughs> right? We don't know much about um, what their disagreement was, but kind of a few side notes that, that are kind of interesting that, that, that these names might mean to us. First off, Paul is assuming these women leaders in the local church just because these two women are having a problem doesn't mean that he has a problem with them. And some people uh, make the opposite point. Like he here and elsewhere confirms them as co-strugglers, co-workers in the gospel. That means probably many or, or most of the churches that he was going around with had women right alongside of men working in leadership as key leaders. Another thing that's interesting, both of these women's names are Greek. Uh, they, they mean something 
Yodi as something like prosperous or, or uh, Syndiki like fortunate or lucky, right? Uh, how about if those were your names too? But the fact that they were both Greek means that they were part of this Gentile wave of people now included in Christ. That they were as new as anyone in this God by the Spirit in Christ thing that was happening, that Paul's helping to lead and, and write towards. It means that they were the harvest, and now because they're co-workers, now they're the harvesters with Paul. So that's what's going on in this letter. Why is this context important? Because the call to prayer and, and the call for focus comes not to people who are ready to do work or to like to work on their spiritual life. You know, you, you get to like January 1 and, and you set all these resolutions that now I'm going to work on my spiritual life. That's not what's happening here. This call to prayer and this call for focus is not a project of self-fulfillment. It's not even a ser service project for others. It, it's, it's speaking these words right in the middle of conflict. He's speaking these things right in the middle of unpeace. And then there's the, the answer to the question of what is tying these things together? Well, aside from the joy that kind of permeates the whole letter, uh, we named this sermon series uh, joy, joy Complete because of that time uh, in, in the second chapter when he says, make my joy complete by having the same mind, and then he describes the mind of Christ. Aside from that joy, that joy that Paul is almost obnoxious about, he says, rejoice again, I say rejoice, and I heard Justin and, and Devin uh, rehearsing before, rejoice again, I say rejoice, and it's so clumsy, whether it's in song or in, in writing, because he wants to emphasize joy is available to you now in the middle of conflict, in the middle of this unlikely time when you don't often feel like rejoicing. But aside from joy, I think the heart of this, the thing that ties these things together is a sneaky little statement right kind of smack in the middle of these nine verses it says the lord is near you can like read completely like right over that and not even see it, it says the lord is near that's like the hinge that goes from conflict towards christ's prayer towards christ's focus towards peace the lord is near I think we often hear that phrase is really daunting, though. Growing up, um, I grew up in a, a Catholic household, and one of my best friends from childhood, and still one of my best friends, but, uh, his family was this mixture of Indian. His dad was Indian, and his mom was like, like a Bronx Catholic woman. And so you, you can imagine kind of like how that household sounded and what the food was like. <clears throat> but uh, we'd always hang out at my friend's house, and we'd play pool, and we'd play ping pong, and we'd watch movies. And whenever we were in the den, and we'd watch TV, there's this picture above the TV, like in a picture frame. And I can't remember if it had a, a caption or not, but there was no mistake about what it meant. It, it meant something like this, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> Also note the Comic Sans, because if it did have a caption, it was probably in Comic Sans. 
we hear the Lord is near, and we often jump to this sort of judgment or punishment. I think that the Lord is near means that Jesus is either like plastered over my shoulder, like watching what I'm watching, or like maybe it has one of those signs that says the end is near, that, that there will be this moment of Jesus' judgment soon, that Jesus wouldn't approve of the things that make us happy. I think that's why I love these two sets of verses so much. But I, I think that's also why we isolate them, because one reminds us that we can phone a friend in Jesus um, who's kind of far away, and we can kind of, we can kind of get Jesus involved when we want to, or lulls us, and the other one kind of lulls us into the idea we can somehow follow Jesus by merely following the rules, right? Whatever is true, whatever is excellent, whatever, focus on these things, that we can somehow just like get this game plan, take a steady diet of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and that'll somehow make us Christ-like while keeping Jesus at a distance. But many of you know just how insufficient either of these approaches are when it comes to times of unpeace. Like, that's all good and fine when conditions are ideal and you can carve out times to pray, or when conditions are ideal and you can figure out times to, to concentrate on good truth and beauty. But conditions are never ideal. <laughs> that's the thing. When it comes to unpeace, when there's relational chaos, we need more resources than just ourselves to call on. So check this out. The Lord being near gives us precisely what we need, more than we need. There's in verse two, the the kind of the context again for, for what we're looking at here. Maybe he's asking these two women to be of the same mind. He's asking them to be unified. He's basically telling them, make peace with each other. Be peacemakers in your local community together. And then he calls on uh, another person. He calls on Clement, and he says, help them make peace. Like, that's the whole thing right here. And then in verse 7, after we pray, we're said, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ, our minds. Again, he's asking for peace. He's giving us peace. And then we conclude this passage in verse 9, that the God of peace will be with you. <laughs> Again, we're, we're not being asked of anything more than we're being given. What we, what we need, the practice we need, is given to us in a, in a gift, and, and that gift is all predicated on God being near, God being present to us. The God of peace gives us the peace of God so that we might be peacemakers, is maybe a way to say it backwards. The God of peace gives us the peace of God in order that we might make peace. Peace is not static, but it's contagious. It's growing, it's building, it's increasing. Peace is 
habitual. <laughs> it's something that you can get better at. Peace can be formed in you. That's why it says practice what you've learned, received, heard, and saw in me and others. This is exactly why in Matthew's Gospel and the Beatitudes that Jesus pronounces a blessing. And when he says, blessed are, he's not saying, uh, he's not saying in some ideal world or some far off way. He says, this is how the kingdom looks when it's breaking in now. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Because this is who God is, and when we practice doing what our Heavenly Father is and does, we get built into his likeness. Like you, if, if, you're, if you start talking like your dad or cooking like your mom, it's only a matter of time before someone comes up to you and says, you're really part of that family. You really have a family resemblance. So Paul is assuming that God is near, that the Prince of Peace is present. Again, not in some distant or creepy or judgy overlord kind of way, but when God is present, when God's peace is present, it means he's stilling the waves because he's in the heart of the boat that's about to go down. When the God of peace is present. In Christ, it means he's disarming stone throwers, like dismantling these weapons of unpeace. It means the one whose quintessential act of peacemaking with a hostile world involved emptying himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, that's our master story coming back again and again. That's how we read this to act that that Prince of Peace isn't in our midst is kidding ourselves. That the Spirit isn't intimately involved in forming bonds of peace and enlisting us in shalom making, it just means we're wasting our time. I mean, it's, it would be like us sitting around talking about the thing instead of doing the thing. Do you, do you ever get hung up doing that? It's like, uh, this happens so much going to sporting events now and they have these massive jumbotrons and you spend all this money to go to this game and you're just watching it on TV, right? Like above you on this massive TV. The call here is not to watch the jumbotron but to, to focus on the game in front of it, actually to be a part of the game, to like get in the game of peacemaking. So when Paul urges the holy ones of Philippi to practice these things that they've learned and seen and received and heard, he's waking them up to the reality that God is alive and well, even in their world where they're pressed, where they're persecuted, even in a world in which he's being held captive. I imagine him scrawling this like, on sheets of toilet paper to get it out of prison. Like, this is Paul's world, and he's talking about peace and joy. Even in our world of fragmentation and fear, like, I think this applies just as much to, to unpeace that gets put upon us by someone else or by a hurricane as it does to, like, internal unpeace that we 
cause for ourselves or, or we're a part of, or even the uh, internal unpeace that comes to us externally, whether it's anxiety or, or, or some other thing. We must rely on this intimacy, in this nearness, in this expectation that the Lord shows up for us. Not to monitor our behavior, but to guide us in the way of truth. To give us, this should give us an idea of how to read and live that, the last part of this passage, that focus on these things part. Because I think so often we've kind of whittled down the Lord's presence to merely describe what we should be reading or watching or, or doing. As if God is, is some like internet filter or something. Like that's not what God's nearness means. Like, and, and sometimes that's very necessary, that sort of thing. But we're instead invited to participate in the ongoing dynamic pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. To have our mindset change, which takes a whole lot of practice. I mean, if you can't, if, you, if you're like me, like you can't stop biting your nails without a whole lot of like intent and practice. You can't change a golf swing without a whole lot of intent and practice. Like, how are we going to change our mindset without a whole lot of intent and practice. Whether you're an astronaut or an athlete, like you know that in the heat of the moment, when adversity and conflict happens, you don't rise to the occasion. Human beings never rise to the occasion. But you fall back on character, what you've learned and received and heard and seen. That stuff takes over. Your training takes over. That's why you work hard so you can respond. By practicing the true, good, and beautiful in the presence of Jesus, you are and will be become to look and think and act like Jesus. I think that's how all of this can be good news. Because on the surface, the master story of Philippians 2 doesn't seem like very good news, right? It seems pretty rough and risky. All that emptying and humbling and suffering and dying and obedience with maybe the, the prolonged, delayed satisfaction and trust that God's going to fix it all and will exalt you and raise you up. Maybe that'll happen. But that's an awful lot of bad news before you get to the good part, right? But what if having the same mind as Jesus which is what Paul's asking us to do, what Paul's asking Euodia and Syntyche to do, have the same mind of Jesus. What if that's actually the most joyful thing you can have? What if this thing called the gospel, the good news, is good news because strangely enough, it's the truest, goodest, and most beautiful thing? <laughs> what if... We live less like this was just a hopeful way to live, and it is an extremely hopeful way to live, and there is this deferment to it. But what if we live this way also because it was the most real? Like following Jesus and, and thinking on these things and becoming more like Jesus also works because it is the best account for the data of how things are. Like we follow Jesus 
because he died for us. And we're in this country of death. <laughs> to follow anyone else would just be like unrealistic. I don't know. I hope that makes a little sense. But this is why we can stake our life on the fact that God is near. This means, I think, that most of our time is not spent with effort on trying to make ourselves better, but it's spent just making room. Like, when it comes to building, not a lot of people have the, like, the skill to build something that is going to last, but most people have the skill to do demolition, right? <laughs> right? Like, is, is that true, David or <laughs> Taylor? Like, building stuff's hard, but tearing stuff's down is fun and easy, right? Clearing space where something can be built is, is open to us all. So I think we spend time creating space. And I think that's, what, that's kind of what we do each week in the last part of our time together as we're gathered for worship, is we clear space as we confess and we try to listen. We try to make room for God to speak because we think the, the Lord is here. We also create space to be met at this table around Christ's body and, and Christ's blood. And then we create space at our potluck tables and hopefully space at our tables throughout the week because God is near. God's not far. We want to see and we want to hear and we want to experience that Jesus is in our midst. This is what prayer is and does. It means that any time that you clear enough space in your life that God will fill it. Prayer should be way more listening than talking. <laughs> way more emptying than filling. Way more creating space so that we can meet God. This is how we become ministers of reconciliation. Ambassadors. Because any time you're in conflict and you let go of the incessant need to be right, God will fill you with his righteousness. And that opens up massive opportunities for healing, for forgiveness, for unity, even, even as things might remain unresolved, even as diversity and difference might still exist. We, we can have forgiveness and we can be together. I think this is also how joy and thanksgiving and anxiety and peace can all be in the same sentence for Paul. We don't often think of joy, anxiety, peace, and thanksgiving as being in the same sentence. Uh, a theologian, Karl Barth, talks about this. Doesn't he look nice, right? He says, he talks about this making room. He says, thanksgiving means giving God, glory, and everything, making room for him, casting our care on him and letting it be his care. It's in this room that that interchange happens. The troubles that exercise us then cease to be hidden and bottled up. They are, so to speak, laid open towards God, spread out before him. It's in this making room that we have room to spread our lives out, to open ourselves up to God and to meet this God who is near the Lord is near, even at an arm's reach. 
So any time that you dispel the myth that like you're responsible for this anxiety that you have or, or, or you're also responsible for getting rid of an anxiety, that Jesus will bring peace if you lay it open before him. That's, that's the idea of cast your anxieties on Jesus and he'll care for you because he's near. This nearness, this, this, this contact, this relationship with God, this is the whole story. It's not just the, the New Testament story, not just the gospel, but this is the story of creation. That God would make human beings to be with them. This is the story, if, if you're reading through your Bible, this is the whole point of the temple. It's, it's where not only you meet God to give God stuff and to, to sing praises and to offer, but it's where God occupies the same space as humanity. This is the story of Emmanuel. Jesus comes, he's, he's named the one that, that embodies and typifies that God is with us. This is the story of the Spirit poured out on all flesh so that sons and daughters might prophesy. And Jesus says, I will, be with, I will give you your spirit, my Spirit and I will be with you to the end of the age. And finally, this is the story of the new heavens and the new earth that we look forward to. The, the new Jerusalem coming down and God being with his people. The Lord is near.